Well, my brother, I just have one. He's just a bit younger than me. He's turning 50 uh, two weeks from now. And I have been uh, badly wanting to go and visit him back in Calgary to celebrate that. It's like a milestone. Plus, he's my brother. He's my only brother. And I love him so much. And I was, really, I was really looking forward to going, or at least I was hoping to be able to go. I was hoping that by this time the COVID restrictions would be getting less. But of course, this week, uh, they got more. In fact, uh, I'm not sure I can even go to Coquitlam, much less Calgary these days. And I have to confess that for me, there's some disappointment in that. But it seems to me that disappointment is sort of a universal experience for people in COVID. I can't think of any single person that I've met over the past year who hasn't experienced some kind of disappointment uh, because of COVID in their life. I mean, people who are going to go on a trip and, you know, travel places can't travel anymore. Uh, young people who are dreaming of their grad, whose grad wasn't happening last year, probably isn't going to happen again this year. Uh, young brides who dreamt for years of what their wedding would be like, and now, of course, uh, their wedding was much different than they thought. People whose careers uh, were put on hold and whose businesses failed and, and whose dreams were, were kind of halted or stalled because of uh, COVID. And then there are those who actually experienced COVID and, and it caused problems in their life and in some cases, very serious problems. And it seems to me that disappointment is part and parcel of what's happening with COVID these days. And we all mourn in one way or another what could have been over this past year. It's common these days. But, but disappointment isn't just uh, part of COVID. I mean, it's part of life in general. And, and sometimes it's much more significant than the kind of disappointment we've experienced during COVID. I mean, sometimes we're going along in life and everything's going good. And out of nowhere, we're hit with this health issue that we didn't see coming. And, and suddenly, not only are we disappointed, but suddenly we're experiencing a real suffering in our lives. Or, or our marriage that we thought would last forever for all of our life suddenly falls apart or the money that we've been saving for our retirement something happens and suddenly that which we'd worked so hard to put aside disappears overnight from from our accounts or the promotion that we were expecting suddenly we're passed over and somebody who hasn't worked as hard who doesn't deserve it ends up with the promotion and we're left with questions and pain and sorrow in our life and we have to navigate our way through both the the disappointment, and sometimes the suffering in our life. And the question for us is always this, how do we do that well? How do we navigate those kinds of disappointments, that kind of suffering in our life, in a way that brings us life? And, and certainly for we who are followers of Jesus, I mean, how do we follow Jesus as we navigate the, the disappointment and the suffering that comes into our life? On the letter that we're looking at that the Apostle Paul writes to Philippians, He's going to give us an example from his own life about how to navigate disappointment and suffering. And it's an opportunity for us to look and to see and then to imitate how he does so that we too know how to handle it in a way that honors Christ. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me back to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week. Remember last week that Paul begins his letter to this, this group of people in Philippi that he has just this warmth, this close friendship with. He starts with a prayer of thanksgiving, and then he prays that they would grow spiritually. And, uh, and now he's going to give them an update on what's going on in his life, and that update is going to help them learn what it looks like to, to live with spiritual maturity. So we're going to begin chapter 1, verse 12. This is how he begins the update about his life. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, 
that what has happened to me, let's just stop there. Now, now Paul is going to tell him what's happening in his life. And the big news in his life is that he is in prison. But here's the thing, Paul should not be in prison. Paul is not some two-bit criminal who is involved in some break and enter again and is in for another couple of months. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is the one who is leading the charge of the Christian church in the Gentile world. I mean, Paul is the guy who is planting churches. He's the one who's raising up the next generation of followers and leaders of Jesus in the church. He's the one who's appointing elders in churches and the one who is laying down utterly foundational theology for us to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Of all the people who should not be in prison, it should not be Paul. I mean, Paul is like the, he's like the LeBron James of the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers when he was still with the Cavaliers, or the Kawhi Leonard of the Raptors when he was still with the Raptors, or the Sidney Crosby of the Pittsburgh Penguins when he was, well, he still is with them, I think. He, he's like the guy, if the connects have got a guy, who if he's gone, they're not going any further. That's who Paul is. I mean, of all the people that should not be in prison, it's the Apostle Paul. And Paul himself, I mean, he was a man on a mission. Five years before this letter was written, he wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And he, he outlaid for them his plans, his mission, his goal, where he was going. And this, is what, this is what he writes. He says this. He says, I hope to see you in passing. He's like, I, I'm just passing through. I, I'm going to come on my way. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Spain, that's where the Apostle Paul is going. I mean, he started in what is today modern-day Syria. He planted churches all over what is today modern-day Turkey, then into Greece, and he says to the church in Rome, look, I'm coming your way because I want to I bless you, I want to connect with you, but I want you to help send me to what in those days was the end of the world. I want to go to Spain and plant churches there. I mean, the man had big dreams. He had vision. And then immediately after that, he writes this to them. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, uh, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. See, before he heads out to Rome, he's like, I'm going to take a detour. I'm heading back to Jerusalem and there I'm going to take some money from Macedonia, the churches of Macedonia. That, by the way, is the church of Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica. That's northern Greece. And the church in Achaia, that's like Corinth. He says, the Greek church have collected all this money. I'm going to take it back to the church in Jerusalem because they're, they're struggling. And if you want to read what happens, you can pick up the story in Acts 21. He shows up in Jerusalem on this mission, doing the work of God uh, for the sake of the church. And when he comes to Jerusalem, He's falsely accused of something that he didn't do. Results in a riot. Results in him being put in prison. While he's in prison, someone tries to kill him. Results in him being transferred to a, a, a city far from Jerusalem called Caesarea. There he languishes in prison for two years while the little local tin pot dictator tried to exhort, extort from him rather a, a, a bribe. And when he wouldn't pay the bribe, he appeals to Caesar. And so they send him across the Mediterranean to Rome. Along the way, he's caught in a, in a storm. The shipwrecked, almost drowns in the ocean. When he makes it to the shore, he's bit by a poisonous snake. And finally, finally after all that, he ends up in chains, chained to a Roman soldier in Rome, 
standing trial or about to stand trial before Nero, the, the, the biggest whack job of an emperor that the Roman Empire ever had. Listen, this was not part of Paul's plan. This is not how he thought that his life would turn out. And though I just glossed over all the things that happened in his life, you've got to know that he experienced a great deal of suffering along the way in all of those various things. And now he writes to these, the church in Philippi. He's going to update them about what's going on. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what? I mean, if you were Paul, how would you answer or end that question? I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me really sucks. That what's happened to me has destroyed my dreams and my plans, even though I'm trying to follow Jesus. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happened to me has caused me to question God's goodness. Has caused me to question God's existence. I mean, is that what you would write? Or, or maybe the opposite. Maybe it's the other way. You say, I want you to know what has happened to me is nothing. It's no big deal because I'm strong. I'm, I'm super spiritual. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Interesting. He doesn't say, you know, this sucks, I hate it, I wish I was not here. But neither does he deny the hardship that he's facing. You know, it's, it's not like that Monty Python sketch. It's a comedy sketch if you've never seen it. It's from long ago. But it's like these two knights, they're having this battle, and one knight takes a sword, and he, he chops off the, the arm of the other knight. And, and he says to the other knight, see, I got you. And the other knight's like, no, no, it's, it's just a flesh wound. Let's keep fighting. It's not that kind of ridiculous denial of what's going on. In fact, the Bible never denies the reality and, and the pain of suffering and of deep disappointments. Instead, it's filled with stories of very real people who endured and walk through very serious suffering. I mean, it's stories of people who walk through, you know, all kinds of things, disease and rape and corrupt governments and racism and famine and, and domestic violence and injustice and poverty. I mean, you name it, the Bible doesn't whitewash any of that stuff. And not only that, if you go to the Psalms, I mean, the, the largest portion of the Psalms, there's different types of Psalms, the, the largest portion of Psalms are the lament Psalms. Psalms where those who are seeking to follow God cry out and say, God, this is the pain and this is the hurt in my life, and God, walk with me in it. The Bible never denies the reality and the pain and the hardship of suffering. And in fact, at the very pinnacle of what the Bible reveals to us, it reveals to us a Savior who knows about suffering. Jesus was without sin, and yet he suffered in all kinds of ways. I mean, slander, rejection, uh, you, you know, racism, hatred, betrayal, false accusations, and ultimately torture and death. So the Bible does not deny that, and nor does Paul. Paul doesn't deny his sufferings. Rather, what he does here is he looks at them in light of what Jesus wants to do through, those, through the suffering in his life. And we see this in the explanation that he gives at the end of verse 13. If you look at the end of verse 13, he says, well, verse 13 says this, so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, that, that phrase, my imprisonment is for Christ, in English it kind of smooths over the way that, that Paul says it, but in the original Greek, it's actually rather awkward what he writes. Because what, what would have been the sort of natural choice would have been to use a Greek word that literally meant my imprisonment is on behalf of Christ. 
In other words, I'm in prison because I believe in Jesus Christ. That's what you would think that he's saying. But it's not. The Greek word that he uses there is actually in Christ. In other words, what he says is, my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. And what he is suggesting there is that as a follower of Jesus, the, the imprisonment that he's enduring, the suffering in his life, is because it's a natural part of following Jesus. It's a natural part of being who he is. So here's the first thing that we need to, to be aware of when it comes to uh, how Paul deals with the suffering in his life. If we're going to imitate him when it comes to suffering, we have to understand that the suffering that we endure is part of your discipleship to Jesus. You see, everyone in life suffers, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. But as a follower of Jesus, if you understand that your suffering is not random and meaningless, and at the same time that it's not some sort of punishment from God, but rather that it's something that Jesus wants to use to disciple you to become more like him, that changes everything, doesn't it? That doesn't negate or deny the pain or the challenge of the suffering or the disappointment that's in your life. But neither does it allow you to sink into some sort of despair and despondency like as if this is just out of control and I can't do it. See, to be in Christ, to be a follower of Jesus, means that the suffering and the disappointment is one of the ways that Jesus wants to use to shape you into his image. In fact, later on in, in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about sharing in, in the suffering of Jesus. In other words, when we are in Christ, because he is the suffering Savior it means that we too will endure and experience suffering in our life because it's part of what God wants to do in our life. So while Paul never willingly chose this kind of suffering in his life, at the same time he understands it's an important way that Jesus is going to use to shape him, to develop in him that kind of spiritual maturity. So that's the first thing that we notice from this passage. But the second is this. Look back in verse 12 again. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You see that? He says he has really served to advance the gospel. Now think about that for a minute. Really? Paul really served? Like, maybe it's kind of served to advance the gospel. Because, you know, you had these big dreams. Remember Spain? But that's not what Paul says. Paul says here that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, his whole goal in life, was to advance the gospel. I mean, that was his purpose. And he now is in this place where there's been this change in his plans, unexpected disappointment, suffering. And now he looks up and he looks around and he comes to the conclusion that what God is doing in his life, the, the, the interruption and the suffering is allowing him to accomplish what he set out to do only in ways that he could have never done on his own. And he gives two examples. Here's the first one. In verse 13, he says this so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, the imperial guard, I mean, this was like the elite of the elite. Uh, this was the personal bodyguard of, of Caesar himself. And one historian said this was like the, the mix of like the Secret Service and Navy SEALs. Like these were the top guys. And if you remember from Paul's letter to Rome, his heart's desire had been to go to Rome. And in Rome, to see the gospel advanced from the very pivotal center of the entire empire. And now here he is in Rome. But now he's not just in Rome. He's literally in the heart of Rome. He's in Caesar's household. Now, not in the way he expected. He's there as a prisoner. But God is accomplishing something through that that he couldn't have otherwise. 
Because, of course, if he'd have just shown up in Rome as a tourist, as a traveler, he could have preached the gospel in all kinds of places. But not in the household of Caesar. But now, literally, he is chained. Uh, th- th- these soldiers are chained to him. Actually, he's chained to them. But probably in his mind, he's saying, no, they're chained to me. And in fact, these soldiers, they're on a four-hour rotation. Every four hours, one soldier would leave, and the next one would come and put the chains from the previous soldier onto him. And Paul would be like, hey, four hours. You and me, nothing to do, nowhere to go. Let me tell you about Jesus. When your turn is done, great, on your way, send the next guy in. And the result of, the, of that was that it became known throughout the entire imperial guard that he was there because of Jesus. The gospel went forward in the most unlikely of places. As one commentator said, it was like the ultimate Trojan horse move. Here he is in the household of Caesar that is dedicated above all to declaring and ensuring that Caesar is Lord. And in the middle of that household, slowly and quietly, one after another, there are people who are now declaring that not Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. And we know this from the end of his letter. At the end of his letter, Paul writes uh, to the church in in, uh, Philippi, he says this, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. But, you know, Paul could have never orchestrated what was happening there on his own strength in a thousand years. But God did it. But God did it through his suffering and through the disappointments in his life. And if you want to imitate Paul in the way that he navigates the, the suffering and the disappointments in his life, then, then here's the second thing that he does. Uh, he, uh, it's right here. He sees where Christ is at work all around him. Rather than looking at the things that are going on in his life in light of where he could have been. I mean, he could have been in Rome, uh, in Rome free or he could have been in Spain. Rather, he looks at what Christ is doing in the middle of his suffering and the, the situation that he's in. And it turns out that what God is doing is more than he could have asked or imagined. God is just doing it in a totally different way than he thought. And this is one of the lessons of COVID that has been so driven home to us here at the church. Uh, just before COVID shut down, uh, around here, I mean, everything was just picking up steam. I mean, we had this new vision, and we had energy, and we had plans, and everything was going forward, and then COVID came, and everything kind of come to a stop. And I have to admit, I was disappointed. I'm like, God, what, how could this happen? And, and, and why now, and, and how long? But as I've told you repeatedly over this past year, God has done things through COVID that we could have never imagined or dreamed. I mean, we made connections with people that would have never otherwise connected with what God is doing in this place. And there are people who are exploring the faith who wouldn't have otherwise been doing it. And, and, and our Ridge communities have grown and flourished in, in beautiful ways. And people have connected and committed to walking together and praying together and studying God's word and, and following Jesus together. And, and I know people who, because of COVID, ended up losing their jobs. and Their plans all kind of ended and And as a result, they ended up with a different opportunity. And out of that opened up a brilliant way where their faith grew and flourished in a way that likely would have never happened if COVID had not come in their life. And it wasn't always easy. I mean, we've all had our struggles and our challenges along the way. And yet God has done remarkable things, things that we would have never imagined otherwise because of what has happened through COVID. Maybe you can say the same in your life. I mean, maybe not related to COVID, but, but when there were disappointments in your life, when things didn't go the way that you thought they would. And yet God in his grace, in the middle of it all, worked and accomplished things 
that you never dreamed possible. And in that process, he shaped you and he formed you more to be like Jesus. In the middle of all the suffering, Paul looks around him. He says, here I am at the very center of Rome in, the, in Caesar's own household, and people here are coming to faith in Jesus. It's the first place that he sees it. It's in the lives, actually, of people who don't know Jesus. But then he points uh, to a second example where his imprisonment has made a profound difference. It's in verse, uh, for, verse 14. He says this, And most of the brothers, and by the way, as we're, as we're working our way through this letter, there's a number of places he talks about the brothers. Uh, the Greek word that he uses there is a Greek word for siblings. And in that world, it was understood to be both men and women, brothers and sisters. So as we read this, he says, really what he's saying is this. And most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now he says this, not only has my imprisonment meant that there are people who didn't know Jesus in, in Caesar's household who now proclaim him as Lord. My imprisonment has also inspired and emboldened the, the believers in Rome, the Christians in Rome, to be much more bold about sharing their faith. You have to remember, again, the political situation in that time. This was A.D. 60 or 61. Nero, I mean, this guy, he's already nutty as can be, was getting more and more unstable, more and more, you know, beginning to attack Christians. And in the light of that, in the light of that, Christians are not becoming quieter, but because of Paul's imprisonment, they're becoming much more bolder to share their faith. And it couldn't have been easy. But Paul points out that their boldness, though it's inspired by him, it comes because of their increased confidence in the Lord. You know, when I was in high school, my parents uh, took my brother and me, and they went, we went with my uncle and aunt and my cousins. We went on a holiday to Vancouver Island. And uh, we came to Nanaimo, and just outside of Nanaimo, there's this place where they were doing bungee jumping. Now, back in that day, it was like a brand new thing, that somebody would, you know, tie a bungee rope around their ankles and jump off a bridge, and we're like, we got to see this thing. So we went there, and there's a place where you could watch, and we watched. It was so fun. I mean, these people, they, they would go up onto this bridge, they would tie this rope around their, their ankle, this bungee rope, and then they would jump off, and some would jump, and others, I mean, they would look over the edge, it was like the wrong thing to do. The moment they looked over the edge, they couldn't jump. It was just too scary for them. But at the same time, the deal was once you paid, you didn't get your money back. So it was so fun to watch these guys. They'd look over the edge, they'd be like, ah. And they'd try to jump, and they couldn't, and they'd try and they'd jump. And we're on the side, we're like yelling, we're like, come on, you can do it, it's not that hard. And we laughed and laughed at them. And I mean, it was, it was so fun. And then my uncle said, well, hey, I'll, I'll pay for you guys to do it. I'm like, Okay, we'll do it. But it's remarkable the difference of how high 150 feet is compared when you're looking at it from the side as compared to when you're looking down. I got on that bridge. I could not believe how far down it was. And my cousin, she was like the same age as me. She went first. And she's just, she's just short, petite little girl. And they, they wrapped literally just a towel around your ankles. Wrapped a towel around her ankles, hooked up the bungee cord. She hopped over to the edge flung herself over the edge, and she was gone. I'm like, oh, my goodness. She did it. And then it was my turn. And I was like, I, I was like, if she can do it, I can do it. So they wrapped the towel around my ankles. I hopped to the edge. I'm like, I will not look down. Do not look down, John. This is the kiss of death. And I didn't. Instead, I just flung myself over the edge. And to this day, I can still remember that first split second of, like, free falling. It was like, 
utterly terrifying and utterly exhilarating. And when I finally realized that I wasn't going to die, oh man, it became incredibly fun. It was great. But, but see, here's the thing. My courage to jump came from watching my cousin. If she could do it, I could do it. But my confidence that I wouldn't die doing it wasn't based on my cousin. Rather, it was based on the bungee cord. Because I'd watched a bunch of people do it, and they all lived. I watched my cousin do it. They all lived. But it was the bungee cord that was going to protect my life. And the same is true for what Paul is talking here. Watching how Paul wa- trusted God in his imprisonment and his suffering gave courage and boldness to the, the believers in, in Rome. But their confidence was never in Paul. Even as great a leader as Paul was, their confidence instead was in the Lord. Because it wasn't Paul who saved them. It wasn't Paul who would see them through if it got hard. It was Jesus who was their Lord and who was their Savior. And it was Jesus who would see them through if times got tough. And you know, these days, too often we as Christians are tempted not only to find our courage by looking to other Christian leaders who are bold, but then we also somehow mistakenly put our confidence in them rather than the Lord. And you know what happens. You've seen it time and time again. They end up failing because you know what? They're human. They sin like the rest of us. And the problem is if you put your, not just found your courage by watching them, but if you put your confidence in them, then when they fail, then your faith in Jesus wavers. And that's not how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to find our courage by watching others who follow Jesus, but our confidence should be in the Lord. But it's good to find our courage by watching others walk faithfully with Jesus. You know, just the other day I had a conversation with a person who was facing a significant health issue in their life. And I went there to pray with them. I went there to encourage them. And as we sat and began to talk, I mean, they shared, you know, what's been going on in their life. It's it's not just been easy. They've been fear and uncertainty. There's been tears. I mean, they were just honest and real. But then they said, but they're so committed, so committed to trusting Jesus and following Jesus through that. Their their confidence in all of that is in the Lord. And you know, that person, as they walk through that thing, they are going to embolden and inspire their kids and their extended family and their broad circle of of friends in their life. They're going to inspire and embolden them to, to follow Jesus, to trust Jesus more. It's going to be so powerful what happens. And I left that place. I'd gone to encourage and to pray, and I left that place saying, Man, I'm encouraged. I'm going to keep following Jesus more. My confidence is in him. It's remarkable what happens when we neither minimize the suffering in our life and pretend that it's not there, but neither are we overwhelmed by it and say, this thing is destroying my world. Rather, when we imitate what Paul does, when we understand that the the suffering and the disappointment in our life is there as a way that Jesus is going to disciple us to be more like him, And then when we lift our eyes and see what Jesus is doing through that suffering in our lives for the sake of both those who don't know Jesus and those who do. I mean, God does some amazing things. But that doesn't mean that somehow after that all goes easy. I mean, you know, for Paul, this was certainly the case. Even though he's doing that, after this, some of the things in his world go better and some of the things in his world go worse. And in fact, he tells the the church in Philippi about it. Let's look at what he writes next, verses 15 to 18. Talking about these, this church that's, that's sharing the faith boldly. He's what he says. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former 
proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Isn't that interesting? He's in chains in Rome, and it inspires, it emboldens the church there to go out and to preach the gospel. And some go out and preach out of love for Paul and with pure motives. But others go out and preach the gospel out of envy and rivalry, trying to cause him even more grief, even though he's already in prison. It's like, what? I mean, why on earth would they do that? Now, Paul doesn't tell us, so we're left to guess. And a couple of options. I mean, it might be that some of the leaders in Rome were threatened by Paul. I mean, they were the leaders of the church. Paul shows up, everyone's like, oh, Paul's here. And, and they're threatened, and so the way they respond is to say, yeah, yeah, let's take Paul down a few notches. That might be why. Might be that they have poor theology. They might say, well, if something bad happened in Paul's life, it's because God is punishing him for something that he did. So you can't trust what Paul says. It's God's punishment. Bad theology. It, it might be that they're concerned that what he's doing is bringing the emperor's attention to the church, and they're upset. It's like, Paul, why? How did you get yourself in this place? Because now Nero's going to come down not only on you, but on all of us. And it might be that they just didn't agree with his theology. I mean, he wrote a letter to them five years earlier where he laid out in brilliant terms that the gospel was both for Jews and for Gentiles and calling them both to follow Jesus together. And it may well be that some of them didn't like what he had to say. And this was their chance to undermine what he said. We don't know for sure. Here's what we do know. These guys who were preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry, trying to cause him grief, these were genuine followers of Jesus. These were people who were preaching the gospel so the people would come and follow Jesus. They just didn't like Paul. They just had an issue with him. They just were trying to get him while he's in prison. And what's Paul's response? His response is like, hey, no problem. I I'm okay with all of that because, in fact, they're preaching the gospel. That's so interesting. You know, later in Philippians chapter 3, Paul's talking about a different group of, of teachers. And this is a group that is literally trying to undermine the gospel. They're trying to lead the, the, the people away from knowing Jesus. And listen to what he says about those guys. Here's, here's what he says about them. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Whoa. That's a very different response than the guys who are preaching Jesus out of rivalry and, and envy. Because you see, Paul doesn't care so much about himself, but he cares deeply, deeply about the gospel. So when these guys are trying, in Philippians 3, are trying to undermine the message of the gospel, he goes after them like crazy. You see, Paul's not a liberal in the sense that his, his thing is like, hey, follow, follow God any way you want. I mean, all paths lead to God. You can take this path and that path. You can trust Jesus or you can try in your own strength to make God happy. It doesn't matter. That's not Paul at all. Paul knows his theology so well. And he deeply committed to the, the gospel. And so he stands boldly against those who would try to destroy the message of the gospel. But at the same time, his singular passion is that the gospel would go forward. So he puts the progress of the gospel ahead of his own feelings, ahead of the slights and the aspersions and the gossip and the slander of those who are genuinely preaching the gospel but who are trying to undermine him. See, here's the third thing that we learn from this passage here, and that's this. 
you got to put the gospel first. That's what Paul does. He puts the gospel first. You know, in our day, in our culture, there's this thing called cancel culture, right? You know about this. If somebody out there says or does something wrong, then they, whoever they are, decide that that person should be canceled. That, that everything that they have say now, going forward, and everything that they said in the past is no longer legitimate. They, they just sort of no longer cease to exist, I guess. And, and it's, it's wrong. It's ridiculous. But the fact of the matter is sometimes that kind of same attitude happens within the Christian church, among Christians who are deeply committed to the gospel. You see, they differ not over the essentials of the gospel, but over the secondary issues, those things that are, you know, not 100% clear in the gospel. And sometimes, sometimes a Christian leader will pick up one of those secondary things and use it as an excuse to attack another Christian leader. And, and the message that they send is that whatever that other Christian leader says now is kind of suspect. It's, it's kind of questionable. They've got this, this sort of secret agenda. They may say the right things, but now you should be suspicious because it's, it's probably a code that they're really giving out. And these days, the, the divisions are not so much denominational like they once were, but rather they're tribal. They're not in our camp anymore. And, and the only people in our camp, only the people in our camp, are the ones that are really the truly devoted, the, the, the deeply committed followers of Jesus. And, and those leaders who do that, they just make that, that circle smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, you know, Paul, I mean, he would never get involved in that. He, he would have nothing to do with it. The question is, are they preaching the gospel? Uh, are, are they following Jesus? Then he's like, I rejoice in what they're doing, even if I don't agree 100% with all the things they're saying. You know, I remember back in uh, around the early 2000s, there was this guy named Tim LaHaye, and he wrote a series of novels called Left Behind. Uh, they were based uh, generally upon a particular interpretation of the book of Revelation, and they were wildly popular. I mean, people loved them. You know, in the early 2000s, during that time, I was in seminary training to be a pastor, and in our seminary, we had a student newspaper. It was written by students for students. And there was a number of articles that came out during that time just trashing Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind series. His theology was terrible. His motivation was to make money. It was all Christian entertainment. And, and the, the articles were sincere and, and carefully thought through. Uh, but then there was this one guy who wrote a letter to the editor. And his letter to the editor went something like this. He said, Maybe. He said, I don't necessarily agree with all of Tim LaHaye's theology myself. But you should know this. My dad wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And one day he picked up one of these novels and started reading it, and he liked it. And so he picked up the next one, and he began to read it. And he liked that. And as he read through the series, he began to have all these questions about Jesus. And those questions led to a conversation that led him to put his faith in Jesus. So, he said, brothers and sisters, please don't trash him so hard. It's not like he's the devil himself. God is at work through what he's doing. Now, here's the question. Is good theology important? Of course it's important. Do Christians differ on secondary issues of, of the faith? Yes. They always have and they always will. Should we debate theology? Sure we should. That's a healthy and good thing to do. 
But sometimes out of rivalry and envy, you know, Christian leaders will take a secondary issue and use it as a pretext. Paul here calls it a pretense to attack another leader, to undermine them. And the expectation for those who listen to the, the leader who's doing that attacking is that they should, if you're a follower of that leader, that you should, should cancel the other leader. That suddenly all of the books that they've written, all of the things that they've said are suspect, inferior, unworthy of you paying attention. And, and, and it's all because they disagree about a secondary thing. Listen, let's not fall into that trap around here. You know, in our church, there are people who hold different views on secondary issues, and there are people on both sides of those issues who love Jesus deeply and, and, and carefully. And let's make, make sure that around here we don't make the minor things the main thing. Let's make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. And for us, the main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here at Ridge Church, we always put the gospel of Jesus Christ first. And while that's true for us as a church, it should also be true for you in your own life. And especially, especially if you're walking through hard times and, and, and deep disappointments, put the gospel first. You know, keep your eye on the prize. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep following him. There's no one who knows more about disappointment and heartache and suffering and pain than Jesus. And he's the one who could have easily escaped it all and simply returned to heaven. And instead, he embraced it. Instead, he moved towards it because of his great love for you and for me. And ultimately, he suffered a brutal, unimaginably painful death on the cross. Not only so that he could set us free from our sins, but so that he could give us resurrection life. And resurrection life doesn't mean that you won't have troubles and struggles in your life. Rather, it's a promise that God is at work in the world, that God is redeeming and renewing all things, and that one day there will be no more tears and no more sorrow, no more sickness and no more death, and Jesus will rule all of it. And when that day comes, the suffering that we've endured, when we have allowed it, when we have allowed it to shape us to be more like Jesus, and, and the disappointments that we have walked through, when we have allowed our, our response to that to, to lead other people, into the glorious hope of knowing Jesus and, and following him more deeply, when that's the case, then all of that will ultimately bring glory to God. You know, if we have the kind of attitude that Paul has, if we imitate how he navigates the disappointment and the suffering in his life, then in the end, we can do like he says here, in the end we can rejoice because the gospel is going forward both in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. Let me pray for you. Let's, let's end our time together by praying. God and Heavenly Father, we come to you this day. God, so thankful again for your word. So thankful again for the truth of it, for the reality that it deals with, for the, <coughs> excuse me, for the wisdom that it grants to us. God, you never promised that there wouldn't be disappointments in our life. You never promised that there wouldn't be suffering in our life. In fact, the expectation is that as followers of Jesus, as we share in his sufferings, that we too will walk through it. God, you know it's not easy. But God, you promised to be there. You promised to use it to shape us and form us. And so today, I pray particularly for those who right now are walking through those deep waters. Father, I pray that they would know how deeply you care for them. That they would know that Jesus himself suffers and walks with them through it. But that there is a there is a meaning and a purpose to it all. That there is value in it and that you are working as they allow you to in the midst of those situations. 
God, we pray that when they look back, that all of us, when we look back, because all one day do this, we would see your work in our lives. So God, we trust you again. We put our confidence in you. That you might receive all the glory and the praise in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.